You're listening to Hey guys, welcome back to First of All, a real unfiltered conversation on career, family, relationships, and modern culture. I'm your host, Minji Chang, and thanks so much for being here and tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying safe and healthy. I hope you're wearing your mask and your social distancing, washing your hands and making good choices. I believe in you and I'm trusting you with my health and the health of society. So please be doing all the good things that keep us safe and healthy as much as humanly possible. Okay. Um, And you all know why I'm a broken record at this point. We don't need to go into it. COVID. It's enough said. Um, Let's dive right into this episode because it is a long one and I don't want to have my intro beat too long. Um, This week, I get to sit down with my friend Kwok To, who is an amazing human being, and he's a public defender up in Sacramento, and um, he's my former co-worker. And Kwok and I met back a number of years ago, I won't say when, but uh, we worked at a nonprofit called Prevention Institute in Oakland, California, and uh, I'd already been there a couple years, I think, when Kwok came into the universe Um, right out of college. And we both went to UC Berkeley and had a big heart for public health, for social justice. And we learned a lot about this at our work, which we'll mention a bit. And um, just a disclaimer, I personally felt really nervous and like imposter syndrome about even talking about criminal justice on this podcast. Um, I don't, I'm not an expert in any way, shape or form. However, I kind of realized through talking with Kwok before we even recorded this episode that that's actually an important perspective, I guess, to bring to the table uh, because he was so helpful and so educational in this conversation um, that it's okay. It's okay to not know and it's okay to admit that and then to just learn and go from there. Obviously, there's so much that's been happening in our world (laughs) I can't even keep up hour to hour. It's still the same, man. And we're we're heading into July, you know? And who? Um, also, just sending a big hug to everybody right now because it's it's a lot, you know? And I just want to say how proud I am of everybody who is learning how to take care of their mental health and really protect their energy and their sanity because this is the long game. And that being said, with everything that has been going on, including COVID and the health outcomes, even the public health aspect of who's kind of bearing the brunt of the suffering and who's dying more, and also how that narrative is changing and how our decisions are playing with each other and um, layering that with racial injustice, um, the heinous stuff that the Black community has has been dealing with since forever and um has has taken steam rightfully so and it is so many ways we're just like finally like it took long enough you know but at least we're here and um there's still issues within the Asian American community with hate crimes and in general you know we're just under so much stress it, it makes sense to me it makes perfect sense that things are unraveling a bit um and that being said you know I'm a believer that tough times 
can be pivotal moments for us to reconfigure our lives, to reevaluate and to come back stronger. And I do believe that that's what's happening now. I do think there's a massive awakening that's happening in society globally. This is not even just domestically here in the States, even though we we going through it, okay? Like it's, I'm sorry, I'm just, it's a sad time to be an American, but an important time, you know? So all that being said, um, with the continuing pandemic and the continuing stress that we can predict and foresee going in with politics and all the all the different things that are at play right now and the way that that's being internalized and and lived out in our personal lives day to day with our work the economy all of it um it's just to like take stock of it you know it's not to cause panic but i think if you're listening to this podcast, you're listening because you want to learn and you want to figure out how to make things better. So, because that's definitely my heart and that's the point of this conversation. So I want to just take a moment to recognize that and thank you and prepare you for a really good, long, substantial conversation with a trial lawyer um, who's a Vietnamese refugee who is... uh you know, Bay Area native with a, with a tremendous heart, with who's smart as hell, and who has a lot that he wants to contribute to the world, and and he did that in part by helping educate me. So, prefacing that so that you also be forgiving of me if I say anything that's ignorant or whatnot. I'm not trying to do this sorry thing, but I'm just letting you know I might not have. I don't have it together in this area. This is definitely new for me. So if it is new for you, I'm right there with you and we're in good hands. And I just want to encourage everybody, you know, uh, as we move forward in making the world a better place, please keep your eyes open. I know that there's so much that's happening out there and it's all very overwhelming when it goes from deeply personal to like straight up existential. Like why is humanity like this kind of mentality? It's a lot. So um, just know that this is the long game. This is going to require teamwork and strategy and perseverance. So take your breaks, give yourself a break and do what you can. Okay, that's, that's the point. We will do what we can when we can and we will keep moving forward. Just want to do a couple shout outs because uh, in this, in the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that it's Pride Month, happy Pride Month, I have a great, great episode with uh, D'Lo to talk about the trans community and Disclosure, which is a documentary I've I've been watching. I'm not done with it yet, but it's mind-blowing already. Um, there's so much happening. So watch the documentaries read the books, have the conversations, ask questions, read articles, be educated, do your research. And um, for Juneteenth, I supported some local black businesses. That was really wonderful. Honestly, I've been cooking at home a lot. So it was nice to eat out and and to feel like I'm contributing some way. And like, you know, this mutually beneficial way was even better, you know, like enjoy food and enjoy. Um, I follow some like spiritual guides on YouTube and I 
I tip them a few dollars. You know, they're black content creators and I freaking love them. Like it wasn't even like I'm doing it at charity. It's like I freaking love them. I want to support artists and creators. And so just making a point of it, right? And do what you can because no one's expecting the entire universe. And I also contributed some money to the Equal Justice Initiative, to the NAACP and to ACLU for their civil rights uh, legal matters. And so I want to plug that. Again, these are not the only organizations out there. There's so many um, movements that are still moving ahead for all of the many, like this devastating amount of cases that uh, the Black community has been suffering through justice for continuous continuing justice for George Floyd, for Breonna Taylor, like her murders are not even arrested, like just boggles my mind. Um, there's people who are supporting Rayshard Brooks. There's a renewed uh, interest in Elijah McCain. That story just completely wrecked me. And that happened last year. There's so many, many stories, y'all, like can't even keep up, which is, again, can be soul crushing. We think of Philando Castile and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and Oscar Grant, which you talk about from Oakland. Um, you know, we all care and we all got to do our part. So whether that's a conversation or social media push or a donation or a petition signed, um, step by step, one thing at a time, we'll make it happen. We'll, we'll make sure that justice is served. Okay. And uh, yeah, that's the intro to the episode. Quick shout outs for my channel. I'm coming upon my three-year anniversary, <laughs> which is uh, my birthday in July. I'm really excited about that. Even excited about getting older and wiser. Not about my joints hurting, because what the hell is going on with that? Um, but for everybody who's been sticking along, sticking by my side and just staying with me through this journey, thank you so, so much. I have now gone live with first of all pod.com and only took me three years, you guys. Um, but there you'll find links to everything and you'll be able to get to the episodes, um, to, you know, links to my PayPal, links to get my stickers eventually soon, I swear. And uh, my Amazon wish list, things like that. If you'd like to contribute and give back, thank you to everyone who's been offering to do that. I'm super, super touched. I'm just blown away. Um, and Always appreciate a five-star review if you enjoy this podcast and and uh, subscribe to make sure. I feel like a, a freaking YouTuber. Go ahead and smash that like button, but I'm not on YouTube. But maybe that'll happen. Um, we'll see. I'm building a new office in my, in my place, and it's crazy. I'm moving forward, guys. I'm going to get emotional. If you'd like to reach out to me, email me at firstofallpod at gmail.com. You can go to first of all pod at oh first of all dot com first of all pod geez I don't even know my plug yet first of all pod dot com for all the links to everything to my social media um, follow me on Instagram all that good stuff would love to connect with you and support you thank you to everyone who's been tagging me and sharing uh, the dateable podcast and everything go check it out but yeah that's it for the intro for real this is. See, they all just end up so much longer. I'll, I'll start <laughs> time stamping everything so we can jump ahead. But I do appreciate all of you. I hope that you learn lots and stay open-minded, ask more questions, and stay safe. I love you. Enjoy the episode with Quacto. Thank you. thinking that people can do better. Do better. I refuse to be your Jackie. I refuse to be your Jackie. Keep on yapping off like that. 
keep a yapping all that jazz. A man can only take so much. Hi, Kwan. Hey. I'm not a ninja. How are you doing? I don't do kung fu. I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, you know, I feel like your energy is a lot like on a higher vibration right now than I am, Isan. I'm, 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 I'm good. I just, uh, I'm regrouping from the day. I feel like I need like a daily check in on myself. Yeah, yeah. One of those days. You, you, no, you had a busy day at work, right? I've been like, I introduced I you. You know, you're public defender. How is that life yeah. treating you? Um, it's, uh, I, I mean, I, it's my dream job. I should say that off the bat. Um, you know, I. Um, very early on in law school, I wanted to be a public defender. So I love it. It's, uh, you know, it gets me up in the morning. Um, I I know it's, uh, people have said this, but you know, if you do what you love, you don't, I mean, if you do what you love for work, you don't work. Um, you know, it's, it's, it feels like that, but there's some days that are rough. Um, you know, like I was telling you before this, um, you you know, my job requires a lot of emotional energy. Uh, yeah. dealing with clients, a lot of them are dealing with trauma, um, yeah. and a lot of them are dealing with uh, very traumatic situations currently. Not only past traumas, but you know, being in jail and facing criminal charges is a traumatic thing. Um, and so sometimes you kind of, and most of, you have to always be the adult in the room. So most of the time, um, when you have difficult days, it it can be pretty taxing emotionally. But um, but I mean, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else right now. You know, um, I love that it. is so. honestly like, okay, for context. And I mentioned earlier, like, you know, we used, we worked together once upon a time, which feels mm-hmm. like many, many lifetimes ago. I yeah. had no idea, even when, you know, when we knew each other back in Oakland, that that was your dream job. Mm-hmm. I knew that, um, you know, when you were like going to law school, that was freaking amazing. I'm super excited for yeah. you. Also fearful for you because I have a lawyer in the family and <laughs> yeah, my brother, brother yeah. has gone through that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's more like I fear for your family. I got in, I got in hell of fights with my brother after, right after he got out of law school. But um, can <laughs> you, you like, I, can that? you feel me? Did Go I? Ahead. No, I'm saying you, you've mentioned that on the podcast about uh, after law school, he started cross-examining you. Um, I, Hell yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I tend to do that too. I have to like, um, you know, my fiance had to remind me I, I'm, I'm not on the stand right now. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking, we're not talking so, so okay, silver lining though. I know I can be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, here's what, What's this is me, the grown woman, Minji. I appreciate mm-hmm. the 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 pushback and the difficulty of having been around my brother and my father in particular because they are the two closest people you know men and two closest people in my life who have definitely pushed back at me and made me mm-hmm. uh have to stand my ground and come up with a coherent argument that's a skill yeah. set that I use on the regular, even, you know, on the hostile environment. Right. But yeah. I think that like, yeah. there's a, there's a silver lining to that. Okay. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess. I, I, I mean, I, that, that's great for you. I, I, but I know that we can be very difficult and over opinionated. I'm very self-aware. That's very that. gracious of you. I'm very, I'm very happy to hear that. And my, my brother has straight up, he's apologized. Like it's, it's honestly built yeah. our relationship. Cause I was like, yeah, you're horrible. I don't want to talk yeah. to you. Like we're having bad fights, but we're, we're well, good sis- now. You know, my sister's a public defender too. So we, we kind of, Oh my, yeah. That's so like, amazing. Okay. Yeah. 
So back to the original question, can you yeah. like what was how can you elaborate on this dream job thing? And like how and when did you dream of becoming a public defender? Like what is the story behind that? Yeah. Uh, well, um I mean I first of all, I it wasn't my dream job so much when we worked together at prevention institute in college. Mm-hmm. I um I I knew I always wanted to do something social justice related. Um you know, at, at PI, we, we worked on a, uh, one of the things that they worked there was violence prevention. That actually got me started on a, like looking at, um, you know, I took one of the classes that um, uh, our executive director started there, you know, violence prevention as a public health issue. And so I just got mm-hmm. into, uh, um, you know, looking at, looking at that and thinking I wanted to do something within the community. Um, I grew up in a, you know, poor, underserved community, um, community of color, you know, I'm a refugee. We we came over to America on a refugee resettlement, uh, you know, um, plan. And um, I, I grew up in a, you know, poor community where I saw the pitfalls of crime and, um, I mean, pitfalls of poverty and, and homelessness and lack of social services and, and what it does to the community and how that's intertwined with, you know, criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, I haven't really shared this uh, with a lot of people, but in college, I don't know if you remember, but um, about about like a, a couple of weeks before the end of my second year, I think that was your senior year, uh, mm-hmm. one of my uh, fraternity mates got killed outside of our house. I think it was like it was huge news at Berkeley, right? He was like top of his class in you know, nuclear engineering. Um, really i don't remember i apologize there's a lot from my past that's a blur but yeah oh my god no worry yeah yeah so he was he was stabbed outside of sigma pi um and i was i was like there i was like i had seen him like minutes before that and um so the trial unraveled over the next couple years and um it's like some of if some of my fraternity brothers hear this podcast they're going to be like wow we didn't even know this but you know when i was sitting in the the through that the case and going through that case, um, I felt this. So the kid, you know, when, when I learned more about him, it turns out like he was, you know, his, his, um, his mom was unemployed, but she worked for a nonprofit. His dad, I think was like construction work, but either way, they came from a working class family, went to public schools. He went to, you know, uh, Berkeley, uh, high school, uh, nearby. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I sitting in that courtroom, I kind of felt more, I, I felt like I empathized with him, you know, because he 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 reminded me of uh you know just people kids I grew up with, um you know and and my, I myself came through that environment and I know that I'm very fortunate to be where I'm at, um you know I I you you kind of make your own luck but a lot of it is you, you catch a lot of breaks along the way and I kind of was keenly aware of how close I was from not being at Berkeley, not being where I was, you know? And so I kind mm-hmm. of just, it, I couldn't help but feel empathy for him. And so it kind of made me like, you know, I wanted justice for my my friend who was killed tragically, but I, I kind of also felt like this kid's gonna, I, I didn't, he, he got in, he killed someone in a drunken fight, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I was like, he gets convicted, he goes to prison, Justice just felt elusive, really elusive to me. And I think that was that experience was very transformative uh, for me, especially with my background and everything that was going on, knowing that I always wanted to do social justice. And so, you know, I got to law school and I actually um, was recruited to uh, help run 
this campaign for my uh, one of my mentors, Vu Trin. He's a former public defender in Orange County. He he has his own private practice now. Um, he was running for DA. And so if if you mm-hmm. if, I don't know if people are paying attention, but you know the re- recent DA election in San Francisco, um, they elected Guess uh, Bowden um, from the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, but he wasn't the first public defender run for DA. Um, and so he ran he he ran for DA. I um, managed his campaign. Um, wow. He obviously lost. George Gascon won that year, and uh, but just being with him, it just he was like you know. Um, I was working at a uh, a firm that summer. I, I was I, I wasn't happy. Um, it was like civil uh, civil work, and I just wasn't happy. And he was like, you "Just you got to apply for the public defense office." Um, and so I did. Um, and I the next semester, I uh, you know I got I got an internship at the Contra Costa Public Defense Office, and I fell in love with the work. It just was. It was like this is what I. I want to do this was you know what I was meant to do and and uh wow. yeah that the rest is history that's quack you've I mean yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm a very I I've just uh I'm having a moment just reflecting on how <laughs> yeah. our past can cross you know in in these ways and like when you bring up Larry and stuff and like all the yeah. craziness of of life and prevention institute we're, we're essentially I mean I'm a couple years older than you but we're essentially babies yeah. like really yeah. embarking on a on a very big trajectory that we had no idea what was about to happen but it's i feel yeah. really i don't mean it in a patronizing way. i'm just so proud of you like that's it's incredible uh, and <laughs> thank you it's not thank a you. small undertaking that. you know what i mean like yeah mm-hmm. any any endeavor and especially a dream because there's a lot of layers to that because i think be, these yeah. big visions that we can have for ourselves can feel very like larger than life but like you actually went out and did it, you know? So I just, I'm really proud yeah. of you. That's amazing. And um, well, I, I think, you know, that. for me, I feel a certain level of uh, enlightenment just having been around like my brother, right? Um, mm-hmm. Learning about the legal system, learning about, literally just learning how things work, right? And mm-hmm. it's part of like the reason why you and I connected because we're in this really crazy time with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, with with you know our our shared passion for social justice in general, which is what brought us to cross paths in Oakland um, all those years ago. Mm-hmm. But I think you know this is not to disparage anybody or to talk down. It's just like I'm just as a grown woman, I'm learning more and more every day how much I don't know about what I don't know. You know, there's mm-hmm. so yeah so many systems um, that operate in this in these different universes that I have no, no knowledge about. Right. And yeah. it only yeah. becomes relevant at certain times. And then you're just like, Oh my God, I had no idea it works this way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I say that about a lot of different things that are now hopefully going to be put into work that I can write and make films and write stories about. But right now is just this Mona reflection. I think there's a lot of awakening happening to social mm-hmm. justice as a there- whole the systems, the broken system, what it, if that's, you know, someone's perspective, that's my perspective. Um, the, yeah. the groundwork that was laid to build these systems, how they were. And like, it's just, I don't know. I just feel like I'm learning something every freaking day. It's a bit overwhelming, but it's what brought us together to like, talk about this was to see a lot of the universe that we're currently living in, where there's a lot of feelings and a lot of, like you just mentioned at the top of the episode, like trauma, um, but to see it through your lens and to understand 
the complexities. Like, honestly, let's just like start. Yeah. I, I want to learn, you know, that's like the mode that I'm in right now. I want to keep that yeah. mode forever, but I want to learn and understand. And I feel like what better way than to understand from the source, from the person that's in the courtroom, that's dealing with, you know, defendants, right? Like how yeah. can you just, okay. Just to like treat me like I'm a five-year-old because I think that's the best way we're going to have to go about this conversation. <laughs> Well, I, well, who are your I, yeah, clients? Sure. Um, How does I, that exist? <laughs> who are my clients? Uh, so, um, you know, the the Constitution guarantees us all uh, you know, access to counsel. Um, you know, and it's uh, it started. I, I forget the year. It was a long time ago, like 1950. I, I should know this. People are going to be ashamed of me. Like 1954 or something. Gideon v. Wainwright. Um, it established a right to counsel in all criminal cases. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I mean, just briefly to tell you about the case, basically this, this guy, Gideon, who was uneducated. Um, he got accused of, uh, you know, burglarizing this, this bar and they, they arrested him. They charged him. He, you know, he represented himself um, and he, he lost. Um, uh, the case eventually went to the Supreme Court uh, it was filed on appeal. It went to the Supreme Court, and uh, in that case, they established that you know you have uh, he didn't have access to counsel. He you know, and he he was indigent. He couldn't afford a lawyer, so he had to represent himself, and that's not fair, right? He here is this guy who's not a lawyer. He's going against the state attorney, who's you know experienced. He has the system behind him, and so that's not fair inherently, and so. Um, Mm -hmm. he, the case was remanded back to the local court and he got a new trial with now with an attorney that was paid for by the state. Um, and he was found not guilty. And so, um, from then on established, you know, public finance systems across uh, the country. And, um, and to answer your question, how do I, who are my clients? Um, so I, uh, you know, in, in, particularly in Sacramento County, but in any county in all jurisdictions in the United States, um, you get arrested for a crime. You have to be brought to court and arraigned. Uh, you, the judge reads you your charges. And at least in my court, we kind of do it a, a, a little different in every county, but in Sacramento County, basically, um, once you come to court, you know, a judge reads you your charges, asks you if you can afford a lawyer. If you say you can't, they, uh, you know, he points a public defender and I'm there. I'm in the intake courts right now, currently, um, mm. and it's the jail courts, and I, I stand up and I say, you know, judge, I'll accept the appointment, and, and that's that's basically it. That's how the case gets started. I, I get the discovery, and I review the case. I go meet with the client, and I negotiate with the DA, and we try to resolve cases, and when we can't, we set it for trial. I don't know if that's enough so you're, detail. <laughs> no, that that's that's a very good. See, I, this is why I appreciate yeah. the attorneys. They know how to uh, present because that's part of the job yeah. is like presenting yeah. the case and and understanding the details and being able to distill it into to into an argument or like a proper yeah. argument. Um, so what I've again learned from my brother, but <laughs> I mean, okay, well, damn, I just I, I I'm a very big like. You know, I work in in entertainment and I'm dealing with a a lot of artists and creatives and and different types of stress and different types of uh, scenarios in which people are like demanded to perform and and 
create like on demand, right? And like, I can only imagine, I just want to start off with like, bless your heart, because that sounds so stressful. And it's a very heroic thing. And, you know, I know that lawyers get a bad rap. And trust me, like I've dealt with a whole mess of different kinds of people and different lawyers in my mm-hmm. life. Um, so there's, you know, it's like, oh God, it's like that trite thing of like, oh, there's bad eggs everywhere. But that's, we're not going to, we're not even going to yeah. go there right now. But to to get up every oh, we'll day and to do that, we'll go there. Oh, we'll get there eventually. We'll get there eventually. But right now, it's to it's to yeah. say that like, geez, yeah. like I cannot just from yeah. my perspective, I can't imagine getting up every day. And that's honestly why, like, when I think of my brother's life, he like he gets up and goes and makes everybody else's problems and traumas and issues and fights his own, right? Um, yeah, and, yeah. and that's your job is to defend that. So, yeah. Whew, yeah, yeah, yeah. And here you are talking it, to me on a podcast. And, so and let me be your like therapist for a second. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Just let it all out, you know, whatever you cared to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to to talking about the issue. What What is? I guess how would you How would you even start? Like, what's happening right now? Like, what is the What is the thing that's been like on your mind with all of everything? You know. Um, man, a lot of things have been on my mind. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is with what's going on right now, um, you know, especially in light of, uh, you know, incidents with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, and, you know, to a different extent, Martin Arbery recently, um, you know, the, the issue of race and criminal justice is at the forefront right now, right? That's the national conversation. It's, it's been a forefront despite what's going on with, you know, we, we kind of forget COVID-19 is kind of right, around. Right. Um, but, but, but those issues of race and criminal justice, it's, it's been at the forefront for public defenders every day. It's been like that for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, so I guess, the, and you know, when you, you ask, you know, what's, what's been on my mind, um, you know, the same issues that's always been on my mind. I, I don't, I don't mean to come off as, you know, the wrong way, but it's, it really has been, um, these are issues that we deal with, you know, every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the inequalities that we see in our criminal justice right. system. I mean, so can you reflect on, I mean, you, it's not coming off the wrong way. That's just facts, you know, like that is your life. And, yeah. and yeah. it's uh, why I care to talk with you about this is to get, educated on that because for for yeah. a certain people for a large group of people this is this is an acute instance right this is a a, a terrible mm-hmm. moment of a necessary moment mm-hmm. in my my opinion of mass reflection mm-hmm. and mass awakening like mm-hmm. i've been using that word a lot um it's just opening our eyes to a lot mm-hmm. of the problems that have been going on and in that there's like a whole mess of responses to that like in terms of the outrage yeah. or the guilt or the mm-hmm. paralysis or yeah. you know just the straight up rage and uh, like the indignation and like the wanting to to like burn everything down or overthrow things or like reform like yeah. everything's kind of on the yeah. table right now which hopefully i think as time goes by will continue to mature the conversation as we have been because this is an iteration of like again an existing yeah. conversation that's been going on mm-hmm. for decades on decades on decades and for the black community yeah. since like they got here in yeah. 1619 so um yeah. in terms of like the world yeah. that you've been dealing with 
what what do you think? I mean, it's like, is is there something significant about this moment? Do you think that there's something that's that would you agree with this awakening thing that I'm talking about? Or is it just like, how optimistic are you about this? Like for real, like we can be totally hundred percent real. Do you feel like we're, we're in a place of like change and maybe we're like kind of going to the end right now, but I'm just curious. I'm really curious about what your perspective is on that. Yeah. You know, I, it's, well, I'm hopeful. That's, that's Mm -hmm. the bottom line. I have to be hopeful, you know, like it, it, you, you have to be hopeful if you want change. It's uh, especially, you know, people in my job and activists out there and, you know, the people doing the work, uh, you know, not just in the courtroom, but, you know, in the, you know, in the halls of Congress and, and, uh, city halls and, you know, out in the streets, uh, you have to be hopeful for change. You know, it's, um, you know, MLK said it, you know, the arc justice, you know, it, it, it was, it's long, but it bent bends towards, uh, justice. So it, you, you, no matter what's going on in the country and how, how hopeless it may seem because of what, what you see in the news, um, mm-hmm. you always have to remain hopeful. So, so I am, um, and I think that it is really a moment of awakening. I, I think it's different. It is different. It feels different. Mm. Um, you know, I haven't been around long enough. I wasn't around during the civil rights movement. And so uh, my perspective is a little limited um, historically. But um, but I, I, I do feel like there there is uh, an awakening. And I can only judge it from kind of like uh, my what, I, what I'm noticing, what I'm seeing. And even on social media and amongst my friends and family, it's like, people are starting to really discuss the issues. And, and I, I guess to circle back to your original question about like, you know, how I feel about, you know, what's going on and what's been on my mind. And part of this too is that now I'm not just having conversations with my parents, but like I'm, 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 I'm sending them things for them to read so they can educate other family members. And I, I think a lot of people really are trying to now understand, trying to see the issues and, and I, I really do. I, I feel it's different. I feel it's it's something is different. I mean, you, you see it with all the marches going around the country. And it's not anything new. We've marched before, but the energy feels different on the mm-hmm. streets. It, it does. And and I think partly it is that, you know, the younger people are they're, they're starting to be more engaged and, you know, they're the future. And that's who I'm hopeful for. There's there's a lot of leaders out there that are young. They're like in college, in the early 20s, who are out there leading marches, leading protests, mm-hmm. engaging. Um, I see it. I see it every day. And, I'm, you know, it makes me really hopeful. Um, so, yeah, I, I do. And, and, that's, and it, what's important is that we really take the time not just to educate ourselves and learn about these issues, but really continue on and, and engage. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, to a lot of people who – and I've had conversations with some of my friends where it's like, I might not know everything. I feel like I don't know everything. And it's like, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be an expert on all the issues before you, you engage um, and, you, and you get involved. You know, you're, that's not a prerequisite to getting involved. Right. The point is to get involved and like, just step in where you can. Yeah. And I mean, I'm talking to mm-hmm. you and like, again, feel free to like, school me on whatever you feel like is pertinent. I'm, I'm an empty vessel in a lot of, not empty, but you know, like I want to, I want to understand different contexts because for me, I've, I've looked at a lot of these things in terms of the narrative, right. In terms of the story that we've been telling, that's, that's a lot of my world and with media and with artists and creatives, you know, I give a lot of credit to how far we've come based on the artists who have been able to uphold, 
I guess, truthful narratives because I'm starting to really take notice mm-hmm. being in the industry, the disparity, the difference, the, in my opinion, the like smoke and mirrors and the manipulation of narrative to like serve certain agendas. Right. And I know that because yeah. like yeah. I'm, I've been working on the diversity and inclusion side. Like, you know, even like, you know, we've been st- staying in touch with like social media, but like yeah. I've been heavy in that for like the Asian American community. And yeah, it's like on my end, yeah. I see how much things get, it's not maybe a constant, a conscious thing, but it's like there's there's oppression and r- r- mm-hmm. suppression of of narratives mm-hmm. because you're only highlighting X, Y, and Z, and you're leaving out A, B, C. Like that, mm-hmm. the narrative is completely mm-hmm. looked over, glossed over, or manipulated, or like turned a different way. For Asian Americans, it's just a lot of yeah. of invisibility. Like we're just irrelevant. We're the sidekick. We're the you know mm-hmm. the background character with barely yeah. even a name to them. You know. Yeah. Um, but that's what yeah. I've seen. And that's what I'm very curious about. And like with you, I feel like as a public defender, understanding the nuts and bolts of the system to understand the mechanisms yeah. and how yeah. people use them or don't use them to their benefit or to their defense or to their, or even on the offense. Right. Um, I'm just so curious to learn yeah. about that because that's what I've learned through being around like my brother well, and his friends. Well, uh, I mean, I guess I, you know, one of the things that when we talk about like uh, the Asian American community, uh, one of the things that actually has been in my mind, and when I reached out to you, is you know um, the conversation that I, I was seeing, at least in the Vietnamese American community, was that you know, you know, we're not a monolith um, as an Asian American community, but I, I think that sometimes, it, I mean, we we ha- we're keenly aware of all those issues like of representation. Um, but sometimes, and I see that in my community, that we we can sometimes, uh, you know, be apathetic or even anti-Black when it comes to things like racial justice um, issues beyond our community, right? And so, I, I you know, one of the one of the examples I mentioned uh, when I was uh, talking to you earlier was uh, firm action, right? And so, um, that that's that's something that. Um, it, it, I think that's this. There's this model minority myth. I know you've talked about previously. It, it's it's this subconscious uh, thing that I think some people in my community feed into. It's the modern minority myth is at its core is very anti-black, right? If you could just be as obedient as Asians, it work as hard as them, you know, maybe you wouldn't be facing all this oppression, but it's, it's also very anti-minorities because it's, it's, uh, it's what they want, right? They want the modern minority to be a person who shuts the fuck up and doesn't make a mess. and it's, I think it's used as a prop for their respectability politics. And what I've seen really a lot and what uh, this, uh, you know, recent events have highlighted is that at least in my community, it can be, it, it can be sometimes frustrating um, seeing it, you know, just seeing um, how we're, we're open to being used as a wedge issue. Um, is it, you know, r- right now, right now there's, there's a lot of people don't know, but there's a affirmative action case that uh, is moving uh, through the courts, and it's going to be heard by the Supreme Court very soon about race-conscious admissions in uh, higher education, and, and conservatives have been trying to uh, chip away at that. You know, um, they just to give you a little history, right? Um, in 1978, they they ruled that uh, there was the UC Regents uh, Regents of University of California v. Bake in 1978. Uh, they used to have a racial quota in California. They used to reserve like 16 out of every 100 seats were reserved for Asians. 
Um, and the court held that that's unconstitutional. It's a violation of the Civil Rights Act and the Fourth Amendment. Um, but then in 2003, so, so universities started using race as part of their admissions process. We're not doing a quota, but we're, we're, we're enacting race-conscious admissions. We're going to use that as part of the profile of who we admit to our colleges. 2003, they, they, uh, there was a case, Grutter v. Bollinger, that um, involved the University of Michigan's uh, use of race in its admissions process. And the court ruled in that case that um, that's okay. That as long as uh, you, you know, that doesn't violate the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, as long as, you know, you take into account other factors. Um, and I think the important thing is that it established that diversity was a quote unquote compelling state interest, that it was a compelling state interest to want diverse campuses, right? Um, and then in 2016, I think, uh, you know, some of us heard around that time, there's a case, UT, University of Texas v. Fisher. You know, some white girl said that she, uh, some average white girl was like, I'm, I should have gotten to UT, right? And so it's racist. They, they use race in their admissions. The court struck that down. Um, and the, the guy, the conservative activist behind that case, Edward Bloom, has now started a new um, group called Students for Fair Admissions. And he's now using Asians, he's recruited um, a lot of these wealthy, it's actually a lot of wealthy, uh, privileged Chinese Americans in places like Silicon Valley and Bay Area. And now he's saying he's getting Asians to be a part of it, right? It's like, oh, um, affirmative action hurts Asian Americans because we do so well. And so race conscious admissions hurt whites and Asians. Um, and and so you actually, you, you, you're starting to see that. And Trump actually tweeted about it, tweeted about it. He, he said, you know, firm action has been shown to hurt Asian Americans, right? And so, um, God, that's, that's not enough that's, reason. To, well, that's yeah. Who can keep up with all but, the tweets? But, first of all, and then yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, but but that's that's actually not it's actually not true. It's I mean, obviously, opposing firm action hurts a lot of Black and Brown communities, right? Firm action has been very important to breaking down, and we're going to talk about structural racism, right? This is a moment to talk about structural racism. Well. It's been used to break down structural racism, um, but and and it doesn't just hurt in black and brown communities. Like, it, it, I mean, taken away doesn't just hurt black and brown communities, but it also hurts Asians um, because uh, I, I know Asians as a whole we are more educated and earn more than white Americans, but that skews the sometimes extreme poverty that still plagues a lot of actually Southeast Asian communities. Right, the poverty rates among Southeast Asian communities like Hmong, Cambodian, Vietnamese, Laotian. Um, it, it's uh, the poverty rates are larger than national average. Uh, I mean, here in Sacramento, for example, the you know we, we have a huge Hmong population, and um, nearly forty percent of Hmong population don't have less than a high school education. Um, so you know, um, and the rate of poverty is like three times the national average. So, um, and a lot of these immigrants, these Southeast Asian immigrants that came in the late seventies and eighties, they're 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 escaping war, violence, poverty, political repression. Um, and you know, I'm, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm, I'm a refugee. I'm, I'm one of those people came here. Uh, my dad was a, a, a prisoner of war. He spent eight years in a POW camp and that's why we got to resettle in America. Um, so it was like really, so seeing that like a lot of people in my community, they're like, you know, black lives matter. This is whack. Like there's that, that's a prevailing sentiment in my, and even my family, like, and I, I have to remind, tell my parents and, and remind people in my family. And my parents are awesome, by the way. I know they're, they're like totally, they, 
they raise two public defenders, so it kind of gives you an idea um, who they are. But but when they're talking to family members, like I have to remind them, like guys, like when we when we were trying to come here, like you know, they didn't want us. They didn't want us, and 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 it was actually a a lot of Black American activists, civil rights activists at the time were the people who were driving that and saying like, you know, you, you guys are also like people of color. You're, you know, you're victims of imperialism of like, you know, it's, we're all a pawn in this, this game, this, you know, it, it, the, the wars that went on in Southeast Asia was, you know, it, it wasn't to the benefit of, you know, a lot of, you know, those countries, right. It ravaged a lot of those countries. And so, um, but yeah, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but um No, you're not. I'm just like I'm I'm totally just listening and absorbing because yeah. it's a it's a like I was saying earlier, if there's anything that I've been learning on this whole journey, even prior to this moment, but in general getting more and more acquainted with uh social justice in its truest sense, right? Um, because mm-hmm. I, again, my gateway to it has been through entertainment, through caring about Asian representation in media, right? That was my gateway. It was mm-hmm. like noticing yeah. and having this feeling of you cannot relegate me or my friends to being your sidekick into being your geisha woman. Like that, it was the essence mm-hmm. of like what riled me up as a youngster. But in that journey has been like this ongoing, continuous, and I'm very humbled and um, just getting schooled left and right in a great way, how much I didn't know. And so I Mm -hmm. I've mentioned it more than once in terms of my own history and my own understanding of my own identity and my own, um, relevance in this country, the, the systems at play that I have benefited from the laws that have been passed prior to my parents coming, the ways that the Mm -hmm. the immigration happened, the ways that, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the Asian American narrative, just again, and we're just talking right in my Mm -hmm. like little, we're talking about circles of influence and our circles of like experience, right? Just in the Asian American community alone, I'm still like up to my eyeballs trying to understand the 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 millions of like different stories right in there right yeah. the difference between yeah. Korean Americans like and and coming over through a law where like they, they were selected basically you had to qualify to come here that was like a that was a thing yeah. they wanted they mm-hmm. opened up opportunities for people with a specific level of like skill sets and education so like you're not talking even like when we're talking about model minority myth I mean that was on that was on purpose. You know, in a lot of degrees, like it was, it was, uh, it was, yeah. in, it was intentional. And then to be used, mm-hmm. and also on a feelings level, to be u- then used in a, in a mm-hmm. in a race context to oppress other people. I'm sorry, yeah. just like as a person, that infuriates me, and that makes me sick to my stomach. That the that this dehumanized depiction and inaccurate depiction of Asian Americans, which again you just said is not a monolith, that we have a lot of different kinds of people that my understanding of like the refugee experience is honestly truly quack with only within the last, maybe less than 10 years of my life. I have not Mm. been educated or understood the political, uh, complexity, the layers, the tr- the narrative. Again, I, you hear it from so many different, from different sources, they're going to diffu- give you a different perspective and a different, mm-hmm. this is the hero, this is the villain, this is why it happened, this was the actual outcome. That's that's not all just empirical objective truth. That's a lot based on like someone's opinion and their take on like, again, who's the hero, who's the villain, why did it happen and what was the outcome, right? And yeah. so that's a constant learning for me 
and to understand like the true narrative of the immigrant experience. That's something that I'm deeply passionate about and still learning so much to then layer that with like my, um, my attachment and my connection to the black community. And I've said this in previous episodes and conversations, like as a minority growing up in the Bay area in California, since the 1980s, I connected very much so with black culture. Right. And I am not black, but in, in a world where I felt invisible, the music Mm -hmm. and the the art that I experienced Mm -hmm. through their struggle, Mm -hmm. I connected so deeply with that. And I, I felt in a certain way, this is just my take in terms of like the narratives, right? The stories that were presented is that white was aspirational. Like white was Uh what you wanted to Mm -hmm. be. You wanted to be Stephanie Tanner. You wanted to be Kelly Kapowski. Um, And you wanted to have like Zach Morris, who's actually half Indonesian. So let's like, he Asian, um, but we didn't know that. It just like in our Zach Morris is like the blonde yeah. dude from Saved by the Bell. But like those were the uh, wow. aspirations of that. like everything. Yeah, I found this out like a couple of years ago. My brain has melted. But it's just oh, like wow. what those narratives and what those images <laughs> and what those stories and what those depictions will do to like subconsciously influence understanding but then also to pay attention as we mature what do we connect with and why because when i think about it like why i feel so ready to defend the black community because i have an inkling you know a a minor inkling of or at least a, a compassion and empathy of like what the hell they've been struggling with for like the beginning of time, you know, as far as I know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, to in a weird way, I feel like I've understood that more, even on a, like a soul or emotional level, more than my own experience as an Asian American, Asian American, mm-hmm. right? Like I have a yeah. limited access to my own history and culture. I'm learning it now as an adult in my thirties. And I'm grateful for that. But since I was born, you know, it's as far back as I can remember, I've been listening to boys to men and Michael Jackson mm-hmm. yeah. and, yeah. Learning about that world and and the struggle and slavery and through history, even like what was taught in our history books in our classrooms, that has more, I have more relevance or like points of reference than for the Asian American identity. But that being said, we're, yeah. we're culminating, we're at a point right now where everything's coming to a head, right? These things are yeah. all, these roads are all converging. So yeah. it's a lot. I mean, just, this is a long yeah. way to say it's a lot to unpack and it's yeah. it's weird to have these conversations with my family and to acknowledge my own internalized subconscious uh anti-blackness even down mm-hmm. to like korean skincare that like since as far back yeah. as i can remember everything is about yeah. brightening and whitening your skin mm-hmm. you know that being mm-hmm. tan yeah. being dark yeah. with with an, our yeah. own communities is so looked down yeah. upon right like yeah, yeah. stuff like my, that my mom yeah, my mom was like, oh, when you were born, you were so white. Like, it was like, everyone's like, man, you look like Western. And it was like such a badge of like, like honor. Like, oh, you, you know, you look like them. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, when I got older, I was like, when you reflect on it, you're like, damn, that's kind of like, it's a very colonial mindset. Like, you wanted to look <laughs> like the French who colonized us, you know? That was, yeah. the, that was what was beautiful. Yep. That's aspirational, right? And so there's something about, mm-hmm. in general, like right now, what I think the the dynamic that I'm very much aware of is like the power dynamics. And I've looked at the power mm-hmm. dynamics from many different lenses as a woman, as a woman of color, mm-hmm. as um, 
you know, somebody who's gone to college, somebody that whatever, mm-hmm. right? I, I've And this is a constant reminder of checking your privilege and checking where like you've also felt disenfranchised or where mm-hmm. you have felt marginalized. Yeah. I have, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and this is what is fascinating me as I learn more about these, these structures, right? The, the, the systems, yeah. what the system yeah. actually entails, um, how it works, who it works for. And yeah. I'm curious, like sidebar, one of the things that I've, I've, yeah. I've like bitched about on this podcast was yeah. my experience becoming a homeowner because I wasn't mm-hmm. educated. Like I could have definitely educated myself and I, I regret that. Mm-hmm. So anybody looking at a real estate read books. Okay. There's resources. Um, your girl did not think of this through before she became a homeowner, but inherently through that experience, again, it was a very personal, very emotional and uh, stressful moment to learn Mm -hmm. how this whole like property system exists that I didn't fully understand Mm -hmm. or, or know and how it's not built for me in a certain way, in a certain way. Like I'm also recognizing America has certain rights given to homeowners that, you know, there's other countries and other systems that do not give that amount of um, power to, but I'm just recognizing like something like that where I'm like, Oh my God, I had no idea it worked like this. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't know all these rules and and laws and regulations and things that I'm obligated to, or that I have at my disposal to like exercise as a homeowner and my rights and all this stuff. And I feel it's probably the same way. And like, you know, we can look at it from an Asian American lens, but like just in general, I feel like the general American yeah. population yeah. may not know like what rights they have at their disposal and what levers yeah. to pull. Yeah. Maybe for the simple fact yeah. that like we have a lot of, a lot of shit that we're dealing with anyway on a mm-hmm. daily basis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. can you enlighten it's, me it's, on that? Yeah. Like, what is it, what do you feel like is the disparity of as you as a public defender and in this world? Yeah. That the average American, like the average civilian and citizen yeah. does or does not know. Like, I'm curious what your perspective is on that. Yeah, that's it's actually it's great uh, segue because, um, you know, it's when you're talking about how our, our, our um, you know, Asian identity and, and black culture, it's like intertwined in a lot of sense. It's that's uh, our that that's how it it's relevant to the issues of criminal justice and race as well. Like, um, you know, racial and economic justice and community isn't just about, you know, black folk. It's also Asian folk. It's, it affects all of us. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, to answer your question about my perspective, I, a lot of people don't think about it, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of racial and economic issues as a whole when it comes to, you know, uh, crime, like, uh, there's a lot of societal factors to crime, failing schools, lack of resources, mental health awareness, access to, you know, a healthy environment. And, you know, we, we talk about prevention still. We, we talk about those things. Act, there's social determinants to health, but those determinants to health also determine your entry into the criminal justice system, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the, and, and so um, racial and economic justice requires that we, you know, we, we stand for policies that impact all communities and particularly communities of color. Um, and the average person doesn't think about that. And, and that's, that's not necessarily their fault. Um, you know, there's, it, it's, it's easy. There's a lot of prevailing sentiment, you know, that crime is on the rise, but crime is not on the rise. And, and when we think about, when the average person thinks about crime, they think, they don't think about all the other societal factors at play. Um, and that's why, you know, we, when we, 
I know you mentioned one of the topics you want to talk about was defund the police. I think this would be a good moment to talk about it. It, it, it defund the police. Um, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of people. I, I actually I hate that term. By the way, defund the police. It, yeah, I think I don't think it's the best media. term. I. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's 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 very. I think we need a new term. Um, maybe we can come up with one on this podcast, Minji. Um, I'm gonna leave it to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, divest. Uh, Divest, divest, right? Divest the because when you we say defund, people think, oh, we're we're just gonna you know uh, succumb to the plague, right? But um, but it's it's not that. It's um, I I said this when I we did a public defense march for Black Lives Matter last week. Um, I, I spoke and I was kind of very careful with my words when I when I spoke. I was I was saying that, you know, achieving real racial and economic justice, you know, at least from the lens of the criminal justice system is going to require that we it's not going to require more policing. It's going to require a reinvestment in, in our underserved communities uh, our underserved communities of color. And that's that's mm-hmm. that's what defunding the police really means. It's it's closely tied to defunding our, our prison system. Right. And addressing mm-hmm. the root causes and addressing uh, the root causes of crime instead of incarcerating, um, and it's closely right. tied to restorative justice, which, which I'll I'll talk about in a little bit. But um, yeah, so I mean, essentially, the premise is that you know there's there's been decades of incremental police reform, right, and that have failed. Um, the, the issues uh, that we we deal with uh, with policing are entrenched within a system that's very resistant to change. You know, mm-hmm. an example is police unions. I mean, even recently, uh, I mean, I'm sure you did. You see that video that um, that old man in uh, that got pushed down in, in Minneapolis. Oh my, that Trump, like, that. Mm, okay, uh, yes, yes. To answer your question, yes. Yeah, right, right. I think mo- every most people have seen it, and it's very frustrating. Uh, did you see that that all the other officers who had been assigned to uh, the protest detail quit? Mm-hmm. Did you see yep. that? Yeah, so, in solidarity yeah, and, with but, but, these these assholes. Yeah, but here's the thing: it wasn't just in solidarity. The union basically said because they they suspended right. The chief suspended uh, those two guys. The the one who pushed and the other one, I think, was the other one who didn't want his the other officer to help. Like the officer was trying to help him, and he pushed them away. And so the union mm-hmm. was like saying, "Look, if you guys don't resign." Um, from this detail, they didn't resign from being police officers. They just resigned from that detail. We're not gonna. We're, you're not gonna get protection from the union. And so that's just one very recent example of how unions like, like, d- dude, th- this like they, they pushed the old man. He cracked his head. He's bleeding from. Like I was telling my fiance when I saw it, I was like, if you're watching a UFC fight, okay, you, when you're watching human cockfighting, and someone gets punched and he starts bleeding out of his ear, you're like, god damn, like that guy had. They should stop this fight. He's bleeding out of his ear, right? And, and the guy's laying on the ground, and mm-hmm. yeah, of course mm-hmm. he should suspend him. They didn't fire him, and the union's like, nope, we got to protect our own. Um, and you know, the ten biggest cities—I'll throw out some numbers at you. The ten biggest cities paid out one billion dollars in settlements for unlawful use of force last year. Ten biggest cities in America, one billion dollars. Okay, and here in Sacramento, we're paying millions, and millions of dollars to settle these use of force. Set- uh, cases and that's taking away money from other county resources that can be used to addressing crime and public safety. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of people would say with the defund the police is, you know, they'll question, well, what about public safety? Right. That's a big thing, but mm-hmm. police departments now have, so besides the fact that, that 
these decades of incremental changes have, you know, have been successful. Um, police departments have been the go-to for everything that they shouldn't be or are not equipped to deal with. Minor issues like, mm-hmm. you know, minor issues to mental health calls, homelessness, substance abuse calls, you know, the calls that, you know, which causes them to be calls that oftentimes get escalated and causes a lot of these people who, you know, homeless, addicted, deal with mental health issues. It causes them to be incarcerated at a disproportionate rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and most of the crimes that they're, they're called out to is very minor nonviolent crimes. I see this in, in my job every day. Like, um, mm-hmm. it's theft, it's burgs, it's nonviolent domestic disputes, it's homeless issues. Like I said, you know, these, and, and so, and you, you see on the news that the stuff that people call the cops on people for, right. Um, yeah. and, and, and additionally, it's most of what officers do is reactive. It's not preventative. Um, they're not really there to prevent crime. They, 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 by the time they respond, even on violent crime, it's, it's already happened. Right. So they're mostly taking reports, documenting damage, interviewing witnesses, taking out information, trying to resolve disputes, but, and, and arrest people sometimes in response to those calls. And, and a trained conflict resolution specialist, a counselor, support staff, mental health professional, uh, people who can connect uh, uh, these individuals to community resources, they're, they're way more effective at handling most of these cases mm-hmm. than a police officer is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they because they're responding to crises that they're not re- equipped to react to. And they often escalate and sometimes, unfortunately, kill people. You know, um, we had the case, there was a case in Morris County. There was a firefighter's kid who like called the police on himself because he was having a mental health episode. Uh-huh. And they went and they, they, they shot him. What? So they, he called the police I, on I, himself I, yeah. and they shot him? Yeah. And we have a lot of these stories that happen around. And I have personal, I'll tell you a couple of personal stories. I, I had um, the stories that were fatal and not fatal. I had, you know, my first year uh, as a misdemeanor trial attorney, I had this case where I, my client was homeless. She was a black woman, homeless. She had this, you know, and sometimes black, when, sometimes when homeless people have uh, like, when they're homeless, they cling on to certain things, right? So she had this um, this pusher. It's like a cart that had all her personal belongings. She was very sensitive about it, right? And so anyway, she's sitting outside the UC Davis Medical Center. Um, and officer, it's like late in the night. Officer stops and is like, you know, what are you doing? She's sitting on a park bench, right? And outside of one of the centers. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what are you doing? She's like, don't worry about it, right? She's kind of being mouthy. And he, he's like, ma'am, I'm going to need you to stand up and, you know, take your hands out of your pocket. He, he wrote in the report, she had her hands in her pocket. I felt, in da- I felt threatened. I felt like, you know, my, my safety was threatened. So I asked her to take her hands out of her pocket. She refused because she's not doing anything wrong. And a lot of people don't know this. And if you're not doing anything wrong, an officer can't tell you to take your hands out of your pocket. There has to be uh, an object. There's, I mean, I'm going to use legal terms. Mm-hmm. It has to be uh, articulable facts on why you're dangerous so in layman's terms the officer has to be able to articulate you know why you're dangerous right mm-hmm. like it has to be some context behind it mm-hmm. so you can't just say you know i feel threatened take your hands out of your pocket and so she did she was like i'm not gonna do that i don't want to do that you're bothering me i'm not gonna do that and he he then grabs her arm and takes to remove her arms uh, her hands out of pocket and she fights back and he and he calls her back up they they end up Throwing her to the ground, you know, like hurting her, arresting her. They took her to jail. 
And then they charged her with resisting arrest. Now, she didn't commit a crime. So resisting arrest for no crime. Mm-hmm. Like th- that was the, her only charge. They, she didn't, they didn't charge her with burglary and then resisting arrest. Mm-hmm. She charged her with resisting arrest. And a lot of people get charged with resisting arrest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, what, are you, and, what are the grounds for that arrest? <laughs> yeah, right. And so it, the grounds for arrest is that you weren't respecting the officer. That's what it was. Right. right so right. we went to trial. We, they wanted her to plead, you know, and we were like, yeah, we're not going to do that. And so we went to trial and we got a not guilty. Um, you know, it's, but that the, the point of that was that, that she, my client was homeless, mentally ill. She's, she doesn't have the resources to get her meds and, and, you know, and no one wants to be homeless. And she wanted to just fucking sit on a park bench. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the judge, uh, one of the judges who I was talking to, he was like, he was like, yeah, that when I told him about the case, he was like, yeah, I'm not surprised that was not guilty. Like what I would have done if I was a police officer is, Hey ma'am, let me, let me take your cart. I'll put it in my car. I'll drive you to where you need to go. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'll drive to the shelter. Like that could have easily, or if you called out a counselor, mental health or, you know, a, a intervention specialist, that could have been handled without the yoke of the of the criminal justice system. She didn't have to go to jail. She didn't have to go through trial. She didn't have to go. It's a very traumatic experience for someone who's already experienced a lot of trauma. Right. Uh, and that's one example. And I had another case where I had a client uh, who was shot and killed by the police. Um, his 19-year-old kid's name was Daryl Richards. I'm going to say his name, Daryl Richards. Um, you know, this black and Hmong um, kid. And he, you know, came from a poor community college here in Sacramento, a working class family. Um, I actually, two weeks before the incident, I was sitting in court. Uh, he was charged with assault on his brother. And his family members were talking to me about how he recently just started, his behavior started uh, changing. He started talking randomly. He started hearing voices. So I was like, you know, this might be the onset of, you know, a mental health issue. And I had to convince my client, like, hey, let's, get you in the treatment court. You're so young. I know it's hard to come to grips with, you know, you might be diagnosed with a serious mental health issue, but, um, but you know, you're young, you have the rest of your life ahead of you. Come, you know, I don't want to see you as another, you know, just another statistic in the system. And I remember sitting there in the, you know, in the halls in the courtroom talking to him and his family and, and I got him to come to grips with that. And then two weeks later, he was shot and killed by the police. Um, he, he was seen walking around, uh, a very white part of Sacramento, mm-hmm. uh, holding what a, he, allegedly holding uh, what appeared to be a weapon. Turns out he had a BB gun on him. Right, he was wearing a, a, one of those uh, medical masks, and back, you know, he, he started wearing it strangely, uh, you know, months before the incident. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, "Who's this black kid walking around the neighborhood? Like he's up to no good." They call the police. Police arrive and it probably freaked them out. Like there's, they, they arrive in mass. There's a, you know, a strange guy on the loose, possibly armed, possibly armed. And there's body cam of him seeing officers and jumping this wall, like because he's scared. I can only imagine he's scared. And eventually they cornered him in, uh, you know, in the back of someone's house. It's like underneath the stairs, someone's house. Um, and he, you know, the body cam actually fell off before the shooting, ha- like minutes before the shooting happened. You don't actually see the, the moments, but he eventually, he was shot and killed. Like they, uh, you know, he shot and killed. They found a fake gun on him. 
Um, I, you know, it's it's just it it cases like that where I just think that didn't need to happen. Like, right? You know, I just and and that's it goes back to the, you know this this point I'm making, which is that the, uh, when you're talking about public safety, officers are responding to incidents that don't require the use of a gun and that, that might not escalate there if you don't have someone who shows up with a gun. Um, you know, right. and, that, and the, the, numbers, the numbers are that a quarter to a half of fatal police shootings involve people with untreated serious mental health issues, illnesses. Right. And, and, and as a larger point, one in six people in our nation's jails and prisons suffer for some form of mental illness, even though only one in 50% of one in, out of every 50 people in the general population actually suffer from. So they're, they're overly represented in our criminal justice system, and it's, it's sadly it's a way to uh, not treat, but to deal with uh, you know our most most vulnerable. I would submit our most vulnerable people, you know, people who deal with severe mental illnesses. For sure, and honestly, like yeah. when I think of mental illness, and I just kind of like step back from everything because I have I have friends that actually are like SFPD and LAPD, and that's other conversations I, I mm-hmm. definitely want to have too because you know me being like the storyteller and the observer, I'm kind of just like. Well, I, I want, I do have empathy for anybody who decides, and my little brother's in the military. I come from a very military family, right? So there's a sense of like, yeah. I know that there are good people out there that are like really there for the mission of like to protect and serve, right? They want to be yeah. a resource and, and an agent of, of duty. And, and I, I understand that exists. And then the reality of it is any job, right? Like when you actually step into, yeah the day to day and you realize the politics of it, you realize the dangers of it, like how like women enter Hollywood. And then like, suddenly you're in a locked room with somebody with a fucking Harvey Weinstein. And you're like, what do I do? Right. And you're going to encounter all sorts of things that, that, that really paralyze you that you were not prepared for. And Hey, those are things to take into consideration way beforehand. And in general, the way that we're approaching these things, I'm sorry, it just feeds into the, white supremacy and the patriarchy that Mm -hmm. has dictated this country since day one, in my opinion, that I'm Mm -hmm. learning more and more. And my patriotism to America and like my idealization of like the American dream and like what we represent versus what we have actually actually done and what who we actually Mm -hmm. have been, because there's a difference between like what you believe and what you do, right? That is mm-hmm. a fundamental truth of just being a person. You can believe lots yeah. of things. You can value family and be a complete yeah. asshole and, you know, yeah. cheat and do all these kinds of things that are very damaging to your family. Just because you believe it doesn't mean that you live it. And yeah. in recognizing that, um, I just feel like the allocation of our resources, our time, our energy, attention, our emotions, our everything has not reflected the ideals on which we stand period. That's like the, that's the most trite, like saying the sky is blue thing, but there's still a lot of people in this country that really believe, no, we're about freedom and justice and blah, blah. It's like, it ain't happening. It's not what's, it's it's not what's going down for real. It's it's not. And it's not. And, 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 you know, I, I, I recognize that, that crime is real. Like violent crime is real. Mm -hmm. You know, sexual assault and uh, there's, you know, we do bad things. Each other. I see it in my job. I, I, I have, you know, I represent clients who have killed people. Like I, I, I it's, I know it's a, a reality, but, but when we talk about these things, it's like, you know, when we talk about, we have to talk about the root causes. Like, why do people do bad things? There's right. this nature versus nurture thing where, but you know, the, the studies have shown how much environmental factors determine health outcomes, brain development, and ultimately, you know, crime, where 
when we talk about trauma, abuse, and all those things, it affects brain development. It affects how people make decisions, how they react. And it's a huge determinant of the entry in the criminal justice system. And, and there's a lot of scholarly work out there that highlights, you know, the link between income and your likeliness to, you know, engage in crime. And so I, I think, you know, people don't do bad things because they're inherently evil. Right. It's often because they grow up in these communities and in a country that limits their access to education, to healthcare, to housing, to social services, you know. And so like 60% of young black men don't, who, who don't get a high school education will go to prison. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality, you know, and, and recidivism is, is a, also a, a, a real thing. It's something I see in my job. I think like 70%, something like 70% of people who, who get out of prison or jail within three years, three or five years, they're, they're back in. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I see that in my job. I have clients who I represent and then months later, like they're back, right. you know, um, but, but, you know, that's why we need to, we need to address those issues of education. Even, and even once they get to jails and prison, that's something that a lot of people don't know is that, you know, so despite the fact that, so recidivism is high, over 70%, but 14% of people who, who earn and uh, obtain an associate degree in, in, uh, in once they're in custody, when they're out, they're, um, excuse me, people who, uh, yeah, attain an associate degree, uh, 14, their recidivism rate is 14%. Mm. Um, if you get a bachelor, it's 5%. And it's, if you get a master's, it's zero mm. basically. And so, um, but the problem is that we don't actually have a lot of, not only do we not have access to a, a adequate access to education in our country, uh, for, you know, underserved communities, but in prisons, we don't, and it's, it's kind of the, the reason is ob- uh, a lot of different reasons, but it started with the, you know, the crime bill in the early nineties, 1992 crime bill. You know, the, a lot of people like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton have gotten a lot of flack for their support for that bill. But mm-hmm. uh, the tough on crime policies from the 90s, it, one of the things they did is that Pell Grants, right? Uh, you, you, you couldn't get Pell Grants uh, if you were a prisoner. And so then they didn't, they couldn't afford college education and states uh, don't want to subsidize that. And so even though we have evidence to support like not only the root causes of what, what people's entries in the criminal justice system, but we have the data to support that. If you educate people, right, you give them opportunities when they get out, they're not going to be back in, in the, at the same rate. And at the, the more you educate them, the lower the rate is. It's almost 5% to 0%. Like, that's amazing. That's an amazing rate, you know? For so sure. It, it's related to the issue of police uh, and defunding police. I'll say divesting police because the police budgets that we, we spend – 115 billion dollars a year on policing right. in America, which is like bigger than nearly everyone else's military budget. Right. You know, like right. other countries' military budget. You know, in LA, where you live, the budget for policing is 1.8 billion dollars, which is more than all other spending combined. Um, you know, it's it's over 50 percent of the budget. Um, and, and I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's all all their spending combined. In New York, it's six billion. And, and it, so it's more than what New York spends on health, homeless services, youth programs, work, work for, um, workfare development. And so, the, and the studies have shown that not only addressing those issues can reduce crime, but increasing budgets of the police, they don't have a direct correlation to reducing crime. Mm-hmm. And violent crimes are on the rise, yet police departments have had, and, and police departments actually have a bad track record of, of solving crime. And so this affects communities of colors because we're, despite the fact that crime was is going down 
violent crime is going down. We're still increasing the budget for policing. We're neglecting other social services that can produce the results that we want, the, the actual results of, of increasing public safety, but not only increasing public safety, having like healthier, thriving communities, right? Yeah. And so, and, and so instead of focusing on these structural factors, we've turned to the criminal justice system and we've done that over the past 30 years. You know, um, it's it, corrections is the fastest growing budget of all funds. And it, unfortunately, education is not. Yeah, you know? for sure. I mean, that's who I mean, there's so many things in there. It goes even back to like the fundamentals of what we're learning through working at Prevention Institute. And it's not just to become like, a, you know, a talking bot for that organization. But I learned it provoked a lot of thought. Like what I learned at Prevention mm-hmm. Institute was the general premise. And what I learned at Berkeley and things like that were like through understanding the public health system, through understanding public mm-hmm. policy, through understanding how mm-hmm. the healthcare system, quote unquote, works from everything top mm-hmm. to bottom. The only thing that I've learned is that you have to look at who's benefiting off of like what, right? When you look at our healthcare mm-hmm. system, they're treating it as a business. They don't they don't make money when you're healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, the the, yeah. the way that yeah. they budget, the way that they function and somebody that's mm-hmm. like building a company from the ground up currently as as I am now, I'm learning it too. Like there there are models and systems that you put in place to maximize profits and there's way, you know what I'm saying? Like that comes down mm-hmm. to like how you structure it. That's why we have to look at the system in which we're operating. Mm-hmm. The system itself yeah. is like screwed up. Then like there's yeah. only so much you can do, right? And so Right. Right. And so that's why I think we're like everyone's so freaking frustrated maybe why were the t- the the things are changing drastically as they are because we're imagining a different future, imagining a new normal like as much as much as we are like all in isolation and we have to like completely refigure our lives right yeah. now. Might as well throw yeah. in all of the cultural and societal yeah. aspects too, because yeah. we're in this upheaval. Yeah. And that's the thing that like Prevention Institute was teaching me in general was the idea. It was the, the notion and the, the truth that the thing with preventative measures is like you don't see the outcome. Literally, when we're yeah. working in violence yeah. prevention, it's a tough thing to measure because you're basically mm-hmm. preventing domestic violence. That's the, the area that I focused on. Mm -hmm. You're literally preventing it from happening. When you have a domestic assault, you have an incident, you have a cop call, you have a battered woman, you have, you know, children put up in for adoption, put into the foster care system. Those are those are numbers and things that you can tally and measure and and document. Right. Um, And when you prevent it. Nothing happens. Same thing as coronavirus. You prevent coronavirus, you don't get it. No one gets it. Like you're at zero. So that's the part. Like I just, I feel like it's so ironic. And it was just such a weird thing to kind of witness people suddenly understand what like public health was because I feel like public health, like Dr. Fauci, I freaking love him, um, was suddenly really relevant now because we had this like global pandemic and people are understanding like, again, the things that are at play and I don't expect everybody to know that. Right. It's not me like condemning everyone. Like you should yeah. have known this, but it's just for us to like collectively think about, take like two to 10 to 20 steps back and think about the systems at play. That these are, there are, there are, there are people who profit off of people being in the prison system. These are privately mm-hmm. owned prisons. Yeah. Yeah. Go a hundred yeah. steps further yeah. back, watch the documentary 13th and mm-hmm. do a little yeah. research. Yeah. Do your own research yeah. of like understanding. Yeah the way that slavery was introduced and like how it's even told again, narrative, right. In certain States and certain communities, 
some some textbooks i think or some some people uh like i heard there was like a texas book that refers to uh, they basically liken slavery to immigration and i was yeah. like they yeah. didn't immigrate yeah. here bro like they were yeah. Yeah. they were they sold as African, as items it, yeah they call it african immigration it's like eh, yeah yeah no, I don't, know. I, don't, I, don't know. I don't think that's actually what exactly happened. I but. don't think that's true. And then yeah. to understand the 13th Amendment, that like what was happening in terms of mass incarceration of black people after slavery, slavery yeah. was abolished and like how yeah. that actually played out and mm-hmm. how that has had a ripple effect for, since that, yeah. since like, for, you know what I'm saying? Like for generations yeah. upon generations, like you are literally setting up. I was mm-hmm. saying this to my dad, like he values family, right? So I'm trying to speak his uh-huh. language and go where he yeah. cares. And he's just like, he yeah. had has had an attitude of like, why aren't they they better? They need to like lift themselves out of the bad situation that they're in, right? Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. you know, I'm a person of like, I believe in everyone's agency to do better for themselves. Yeah. I do believe in that. I'm like, yeah. you got to believe yeah, and dig course. deep and work hard and also call truth to power though. Like you're yeah. talking about generations of absent fathers because they were jailed for Mm -hmm. jaywalking or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, again, looking at a, looking at a policeman wrong, not listening to them, quote unquote, resisting arrest. And they're put in jail for the rest of their life. How are they supposed to be there for their family? You know what I'm saying? And you're like, it's cyclical, you know? And yeah, it is. And I see that with my job. And even when they do like bad things, it's like, you know, even when they commit serious crimes, like there's, there's a structure behind the, you know how it plays out like there's you know crime comes from you know it's a symptom of societal ills and we don't do enough to address societal ills and so you know and that's why when we talk about divesting police yeah well the people say it's it's really moving away from this narrow idea of of what public safety is right right that it's narrow idea that relies on policing and punishment you know, and, and and that perpetuates all the things you talked about, like these huge structures that goes all the way back to slavery and Jim Crow, right? Mm-hmm. And and, it, and it's moving away from that and moving towards, you know, a, a different way of how we think we can solve these issues, address these issues. I mean, my um, friends and, are and teachers towards- too. I mean, like the fact that like teachers struggle to get supplies, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they're making, yeah. they're making so little money yeah. on just that fact yeah. alone. The fact yeah. that there's more than half of the budget for the like for LA to spend on on police for them to show up yeah. with grenades and with like yeah. what like yeah. whatever like they're armed yeah. to the teeth and they're dealing with unarmed protesters right like and yeah. the videos that we're actually capturing now and able to see I'm not saying again not all police are yeah. doing this but there's plenty yeah. of examples of brutality yeah. that is like un unnecessarily brute for unnecessary brute force of like it's just disgusting and it's like the tear gas and like the pepper spraying the beating and the pushing down that is some aggressive bullshit and i'm not saying yeah. like i i do put myself in the police person's shoes they probably got some mad issues themselves they got some traumas but therefore they should not be in that position to even be holding that baton having somebody's life in their hands that's some that's some that's some backwards ass shit they're supposed to be there to quote unquote protect and serve, yeah. but we don't feel that. And that's the very obvious part that like that trust is broken. There's no trust and, or safety or protection when you see when a lot of people see yeah. a, a police officer, that, that yeah. narrative, whether that's, and I, you know, like that's where I do come back to the narrative. Like, are we over, 
like I do. And then I go to media, right? Then I go to like the media companies. I'm like, stop, stop overdoing it with all, like, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. This is me, full disclosure. I don't know what the answer is, but like we're seeing, and then I have friends who are police officers. They tell me their side of the story, how terrifying it is, how they've gotten bitten and shot out and stabbed and like unprovoked, right? They're trying to help. And then they get, so they, they are very, you know, uh, on guard and very trigger happy because they're, they're fucking scared. Right. And they're human. So it's just, it's all intents and purposes in general, this defunding thing, I'm definitely learning more about it, but the divesting of the funds, we got to put it somewhere else, man. Cause what is the general thing, what the data and the evidence is showing to, in my opinion, is that it's not working. None of this is working in terms of like, making people feel safe, having actual problems addressed there. There's enough data. There's enough research that has been done to guide us towards like, okay, we have a lot of mental health issues. What can we do about homelessness? How can we bolster education and provide Mm -hmm. the most resources so that people have a fighting chance to succeed and thrive and avoid, you know, criminal activity, doing stuff or whatever, blah, blah, X, Y, Z, right? Not blah, 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 but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, let's yeah. reimagine this because what is going on is not working. Like we, we, at least, yeah. I hope at least we can agree at that. It is not yeah. working the way that it is. And if anything, it's just yeah. making us more hostile, more distrusting, more fed up, more like angry and ready yeah. to fight versus converse versus come to an agreement. Yeah. But right now I I respect the people that are protesting. I went to a protest myself. You gotta, sh- you gotta speak yeah. truth to power. And you have to tell them like this is this is no longer how we're gonna let this go, you know? Yeah, yeah. And 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 you know my my um my brother well my brother I call him my brother in law. Um, I mean it's my fiance's brother. He's a, a police officer in Oakland. I I know the realities of the job that you know they they do a tough job. It sometimes they you know they put they put their lives online. Um, but but that's why, like what I'm saying and what a lot of activists are saying is not anti-police. It's that, you know, they sh- and there are good there are people who go out there with the intention of really trying to do good. I don't doubt that. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know, you know, my brother in law is one of those people. But the, the reality is that that it's the system, the culture, it's it, it, it you know, it. It trains the training. It's <laughs> there's a lot of fucked up things that we can talk for hours about it. And mm-hmm. and so, but the the bottom line is that like you know, so for these officers recognizing the the incredibly difficult job that they can have, they shouldn't have to do everything. Right. right? I, I agree. Think we can, yeah. That's not a that's not a controversial thing to say. They shouldn't have to do everything. Right. They shouldn't have to come and do like ninety percent of the calls that they do and. You know, and so yeah. and we that's why we should move to a restorative justice model. And restorative justice is is just that, you know, justice can be achieved even when people actually do things to each other. You know, um, it, it, restorative justice reimagines a, a situation where it, it basically brings in all stakeholders. Right. You you include people who um, the perpetrator and the victim together and you, you require the perpetrator to accept responsibility for the harm he made and make the appropriate amends. But you, but it's instead of punishing people, you want to make them realize the impact that they're, they actually have on their victims. And you have the victims come and express, you know, those things. And it, I, the restorative justice isn't just some hoity-toity thing. There's a lot of states that are implementing it. The, the restorative justice initiative uh, that started in, in New York um, people can find more information about it. They Google that, but it's 
you know, they're, they're starting to do that in a lot of these cases. It's where, like, for example, a lot of people will know hear about this case. Remember that there was the, um, there was a outrage in the Asian community with um, there was the Asian guy in San Francisco who was recycling, and then like there was that black kid who there was a some a, a, a guy who stole his like recycling, and then a kid who was like taking a video. He's like, I hate Asians. I hate Asians. Like. You know, and the, the Asian dude was like crying. It was a very upsetting video for me to watch as an Asian man. Like just seeing that, it reminded me of my father. Mm. Um, but that that case that, that um, turned so that case in San Francisco is it's going through this restorative justice approach because the victim was like, you know, I don't I don't want prosecution, and and so they're trying when you bring a case like that, you bring the guy in and and you have the state court sit down and like really address like the impact that that had to like, you know, the, the harm that it had and, and address like why he did it, like where it came from. I think that's, I think more uh, constructive because you, what you want is that people learn, you want people to learn from like the impacts of their actions and you yeah. ultimately want to heal the community. You don't want to just punish people. You want, you want uh, an opportunity for healing. And I think a lot of restorative justice models are, are starting to, that's one of the things that a lot of these jurisdictions are doing is to, to talk about healing, you know, to talk about bridging the gap yeah. uh, instead of just throwing people away, right? You do something bad, you're, you're thrown away, you know, it's like, and, and that's a conversation I've had with, with people and, and with law enforcement people I've known, like, you know, like, okay, people do bad things. What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with them? Are we just going to throw them away? Cause they're going to, Unless we're gonna lock them up away for the rest of their lives, which we're not, yeah. because not everything is a life defense, they're gonna be members of your community again. These are members of your community, right? And so, so we have to be able to bring these people back into the community and, and keep them in the community and and, and feel safe yeah, around and, them and feel safe. Like yeah. honestly, going to public spaces. I mean, this is all everything to me in in my in my mind. The way it works is everything is absolutely interconnected, right? Like it's not a, it's not a selfish thing to want to have safety and justice restored. I mean, like it's not a completely altruistic thing. It's like it's also for our collective safety because we want to feel. We can trust yeah. each other. I want to feel like I yeah. can trust my neighbor if something goes yeah. down that I can count yeah. on them that they would have, they would look out for me the same way I would look out for them. And if the person that signed up to protect and serve and is, is claiming and taking an oath to stand by certain values to put mine and my neighbor's, you know, safety and our, our justice and our protection at the first and foremost high priority in their their work and they're not doing it like again it's about yeah. trust it's about trust and yeah. its safety and for me like i again i walk my shoes as as a woman as a woman of color i have spent a lot of my life being scared and i hate it mm -hmm. it, it causes a lot of anger i think it's a I'm not likening to anybody's like massive trauma thing, but I've dealt with abuse. I've been in abusive relationship and it, it yeah. is traumatic. It is a, it's a very mm -hmm. yeah. uh, low, it's a very pervasive, yeah. like to whatever degree we, we, again, how do you measure this? But it's just like yeah. a persistent way of existing that you're, you just have to be scared all the damn time. And it's, it's mm -hmm. very exhausting. Um, it mm -hmm. takes away from like other things that we could be doing to like make the world better just to like enjoy a day, you know? 
and get gas without being scared of being abducted or something like that. And like, yeah, that's, that's the part that like pains me. And I'm going to put that out there as like, my wish is that we can be more trusting of each other. That's, that's Mm -hmm. really the goal. And also I'm just going to say too, as someone who, who hustles very hard, like we all work our asses off. Let's also just as an individual, as a citizen, that's also my money. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the older I get, I'm like, these are my tax dollars that pay. And it makes me so pissed off. Like, I'm sorry. I didn't, I'm not, I'm not going to let my, my hard earned money that you're taking like a third of it away from, you know, my pocket to spend it on this bullshit. That's not working. I'm sorry. But just like as a citizen, no. And I also like kick my own butt how much I didn't pay attention to like local elections and to like, again, things that I was learning as I went, just, um, The things that like in my county about property taxes, like how much Mm -hmm. I didn't know, like the margin of how that vote went was like by the tens. You know what I mean? Not that many people paid attention and voted. So in that world, like my vote counted a lot, right? It could have been a matter of like my building, um, us voting one way or another literally changes the way that the county uses our money or like the way that we're, we're charged you know thousands of thousands of dollars each year um things like that like again i didn't know and i'm not saying like it's a should 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 i'm not saying that because again we're all busy we're all learning but this is just i'm going to use my little platform however i can um to encourage people to to learn about that because like honestly Mm -hmm. it goes back to the education part like knowledge is incredibly Mm -hmm. empowering it is yeah it is scary because it's humbling it's like oh my god i did not know that and that's terrifying that that works that way and there's something about yeah. that like there's there's ignorant like ignorance is bliss kind of thing like you feel safer because you don't know and you'd rather not know i know that feeling really well but also on the other side of that once you do know like it's also incredibly empowering is very liberating because you don't feel like a victim you don't feel paralyzed or powerless as much as you did before and maybe you can like further act on it and and protect yourself and protect people you care about you know what i mean so yeah i don't know yeah and and and, and when, when you talk about it's interesting i mean i would say that you know don't feel bad that you didn't pay attention to these issues because a lot of people haven't and i we talked about this a couple of days ago when we were just checking in for this pod i mentioned that you know there's I see a lot of things on social media where people are starting to speak out and other people are like, why did you, where were you before? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you? And you know, I, I, it, that's not constructive, right? Like I, when I see people, I, I asked the question when, with Armand Arbery happening, I was like, were you upset before? And you know, you know, that, and I asked that not to say, you know, be quiet now. I'm asking you like, Hey, use this. If, if you care, use this moment to, you know, educate yourself and to be louder and to do things for change. And voting is actually very important. It's one of those things. Talk about local elections. You know, Asian Americans, and you've talked about this in one of your podcasts. Uh, you had, uh, I forget your name, um, about uh, voting in the Asian American community. It's, you know, it's, we're, we already know this, that voting in Asian American communities is, is not where it could be. And oh, we're, we're the worst. Yeah, we get an we F. It, <laughs> we get an F. We do. Um, and, but a lot of groups are trying to change that. But you know, but one of the realities too is that um, most Asian Americans don't live in battleground states too, right? Mm-hmm. We California has one third of all Asians in America, 
and so it's the state and local elections where we can make the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that and that's that's relevant to what's going on right now with George Floyd and discussion about racial justice and all those things. Is that um, most of the changes are going to need to come at the state and local level, right. right? And you're seeing that a lot of local and state DA elections are a big part of that change. District attorneys have a huge role to play in criminal justice. They're the ones who drive criminal justice policies at the local and state level. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who hold police accountable mm. for use of force. Mm. And you know, and so I mean, the reality is, I wish that local DAs weren't the ones to do that. We need to change that. Um, but that is the reality. It's not just the police, but it's, um, you know, they drive criminal justice policy. They decide, you know, what kind of cases get prosecuted. And you see with uh, Mr. Bowden in San Francisco is that he, now he's the former public defender, sees all the issues of race, racial justice in the system. And, and when it, now he's a DA and he's like, I'm not prosecuting gang uh, cases anymore. It's not that he's not prosecuting like violent offenses, just I'm not going to use gang enhancements because gang enhancements have historically been they, they've been applied unequally. They they have a un you know uh, a, a uneven effect and they primarily affect black and brown people of color, mm-hmm. young men mm-hmm. especially. Uh, gang injunctions have been shown to target a lot of black and brown men, and and so you know it's not that we shouldn't try to prevent and stop violent crime, but you know. Gang enhancements are, you know, they can be, I would go out and say it, can be racist. And so, you know, and that's just one example. Uh, it's just what, one example of how your local DA can really drive criminal justice policy. There's been a wave of DA elections over the past couple of years, even before this, where you're starting to have liberal, uh, you know, candidates, people who are either been, uh, you know, d- defense attorneys sometimes or public defenders. Uh, run for office and get elected and drive criminal justice policy. We're not we're not going to do bail cash bail anymore, right? You're, if you're presumed innocent, you shouldn't have to stay in prison because you don't have the money to make bail, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, but yeah, that so that that's going to have to come at the local level, and and voting is is a big part of that, and 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 you know calling um, your you know your lo- local representatives and pushing for for. Um, for things is, is also important. Um, you know, there's a lot of different uh, laws that are actually moving in um, through, the, through the course round. So if anyone's listening, do you mind if I plug a couple of bills for your listeners? Go. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there's a, if, if, if anyone's listening is interested in, in making a change and what they can do outside of voting, uh, obviously voting is important, but there's call your local representatives, put pressure on them. There's a couple of bills right now are moving through uh, um they're important. Uh, one of them is AB one one eight five. It creates county oversight commissions. Um, you know, we all know that law enforcement oversight is critical to reform. Uh, so it's a it's a bill that would authorize counties to create uh, sheriff oversight boards with subpoena power and the ability to investigate misconduct. Um, after two years in the legislature, there was worry that it would die in the committee. But now with these recent social social movements. You know, we need to call. We need people to call and write your state representatives and urge them to pass the bill. Um, the ACLU is heavily involved in this right now, um, but that's that's one of the things. Um, ACA five. It's a, a a bill that allows affirmative action considerations in operations of public employment, education, contracting. So it's designed to address systemic racism. Um, 
AB 1460 would require ethnic studies in the Cal States. Uh, I think ethnic studies is really fucking important, mm-hmm. to, you know, to educate people about these structural things, the historical trends, you, you know, so you can better understand issues. Um, you know, ACA 6 is uh, a bill that would restore voting rights to parolees, right? And just because you are a parolee, you, sh- you should, you should, uh, that, that's, taking away the voting rights of parolees is just another form of disenfranchisement that is, uh, you know, and disproportionately affected poor communities and uh, especially black and brown communities. Uh, and lastly, two things, AB 1950, it caps probation uh, to one year for misdemeanor and two years for felonies. I know I'm not getting into this thing, but I'll, I'll explain. So m- most, most of the time, like in my County, if you have a, if you you get convicted of a misdemeanor, you have three years of probation and you can get convicted of a felony, you have five years of foreign probation. And the insidious thing about this is that ostensibly they're keeping you on probation. Um, you're you're getting a second chance. You're, gonna get sent, you're not getting sent to prison. You're getting probation. Mm-hmm. But being on probation, oftentimes it, it, it's just another system of incarceration. Because a lot of my clients, for example, if you're on probation, uh, you're required to check in with probation officers. You're required to do a bunch of these things that sometimes they can't get to. Uh, you know a meeting with a probation officer because they're dealing with homelessness with poverty with mental illness with drug addiction and there's not enough services to oversee them to act adequately address those issues and let's say you miss a uh, uh, and i see this in my job all the time you miss an appointment with uh your probation officer because you're doing all these things right mm-hmm. and and then you get arrested for a, a probation violation and you know i i get these cases where i'm like Okay, here's what their offer is. Here's what the DA's offer is. It's 30 days. It's 60 days. It's 90 days. You know, it, it whatever it is. And even that amount of time, you're like, you know, you can go fight this case, but you have no excuse. You didn't show up to your probation officer's meeting, and you can't go to court and say, you know, I was dealing with, you know, homelessness. I, you know, all these other things. That's not really a defense. So most of the time, my clients end up pleading to probation violations. Sometimes they end up spending more time on probation violation cases than they do for their original sentence, right? And so you could get like, let's say you get 90 days for like breaking into a car, you end up doing more time for probation violations. And and so the, the, I think that bill is very dear to me because, uh, you know, most of the time uh, we see recidivism actually happens, the I mean, vast majority of it is within the first couple of years, especially in felonies, the first couple of years, you'll, you'll, that's the vast majority of it. So we we need to we need to limit the amount of time people are on probation because it's it can be a crux to re-entry in the system and it crux and it, it just another way to you know incarcerate people and and it's a vicious cycle. Um, and then last last thing was uh, is AB two nine one seven. It's a DOJ. It would establish a DOJ oversight of law enforcement uh, use of force policy. It would require that any time an officer uses force that it's uh, it's in, it's independently um, investigated and prosecuted by the Department of Justice. Um, mm. You know, the U.S. Department of Justice did this similar thing in response to Ferguson, something that Trump's DOJ has has kind of uh, you know undermined. Uh, but here in California, that's what it would require, and um, and I think that's important. So these are all California bills that you're talking about. Yep, these are all California bills, and these are all bills that. You can read up on um, and, you know, and call your local leaders and, and tell them, hey, we need these bills passed and we need people to call. 
and they're listening. They're 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 starting to listen. This is a moment to go and use your power, not only to vote, but to call your representatives, to write to them and say, I want my tax dollars being spent on things that work. Right. Right. Yeah. Like you were saying. Um, I just don't want to uh, personally. And this is like, this sounds like the most Karen ass thing to say. I'm just going to say it, but like mm-hmm. we have enough to deal with. Like again, you mm-hmm. it's like the ultimate customer service call. If you will, if you want, we're going to be terrible, yeah. awful yeah. about it, but it's like, you yeah. know, this isn't working for me. I'm not satisfied with your performance. Mm-hmm. Let me speak to your manager yeah. because it's like, this yeah. is the, these are public servants. Um, and I, you know, I understand that there's a lot of things that I don't know. And I'm going to, I will, I will do my very best to like stay accountable to that because there's going to have mm-hmm. to be a level of, of, of grace. And, uh, people always make the the argument like, oh, you know, changing is hard. Hell yeah, it's hard. But like, we all got to do yeah. it just because it's hard. Doesn't yeah. mean that it, it, it cannot be done and that it will not be done. And I think if yeah. anything right now, there's a recognition of, a very mass discomfort in terms like across the board that we were talking about at the top of our conversation, which is yeah. a recognition of self and the recognition of the the system and all the things that we were ignorant to willfully or unintentionally. Um, there's a lot to, to unpack. And this is where I do like really, I, I don't even think I finished my thought earlier. Excuse me. Cause I have COVID brain. Um, but recognizing that the spectrum of prevention, which is what we learned and yeah. like was we're really trying to apply. And it wasn't just prevention Institute, but you know, it's this, this uh, idea about preventing something, a health outcome, like some, some negative thing that you, you are working on like violence in the home that it mm-hmm. goes from everything from individual to policy, that it's not mm-hmm. a one, one thing solution. You know, you're not just going to do this one yeah. thing or change this one policy. is not going to change everything. We also have to live it. Right. And yeah. it goes down to like our individual relationships, the conversations that we have, uh, the ways yeah. that we, you know, our organizations that we participate in, whether that's like a club mm-hmm. or a religious group or yeah. our companies or whatever, mm-hmm. like there's so many different ways at which we can impact that. And so that's, mm-hmm. I say that and not to overwhelm the hell out of people and be like, oh my God, we yeah. have so much to do. We do have so much no. to do, but also it's doable. You know what I mean? Like it's doable. It's doable. You're right. It is. It's, um, and, 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 Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I just, I, 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 I land on that because I get mad overwhelmed and I get very angry or I get very disillusioned. And like, I, I always land at that. I'm landing on that with everyone else. (laughs) No, it's, it's, and, and, you know, one of the things, uh, as part of that too, is, um, not just all those things you mentioned, but, um, uh, serving on juries. That's another thing, um, you know, that that you can do as well. Um, you know, I, have you ever gotten, Minji, have you ever gotten a jury summon? Hell yeah, I have one now. Yeah. Um, and I showed uh, up, but every time I've showed up, I always get dismissed. But yeah. No, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, but that that's why it's, we, you know, there's hashtag Occupy the Jury Box, right? The, the, the amongst public friends and activists that's uh, kind of seen out there. It, it, because... I mean, you, you, you've been dismissed, but you went out there. You tried to get on a jury. We, we need to go. The, the sentiment a lot of times when we get our jury summons is, is oh, you know, jury summons, right? And I address that when I'm in trial. I talk to my jurors. I, one of the first things I ask is, all right, show of hands. Who here was 
excited about getting your jury summons. And I do that because most of the time I get like one or two hands, right? Mm-hmm. Out of like 80 people in the courtroom. And I, I, I use that as a moment to say, I, I get it. I get you're not excited, but it's a civic duty. Just like voting is, it's a civic duty and it's a, pri- it's a privilege. To, it is a duty as well. Um, and, and serving on a jury is, is another way we need, we need people who are, uh, you know, smart, progressive, who, who, to, to be in the juries because a lot of juries who, and we need people of color because most of my clients are people of color and we need people of color on the jury. We, we need more people who look like them, who are, have friends who look like them, who've been in the community, who are around them. Um, we, we need, uh, you know, especially young people as well to go and serve on the juries. And that's, that's another way of effectuating change. Cause that's, that's a real, you can go in and decide, you know, the guilt or innocence of someone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not telling you how to vote a certain way, um, you know, but it, it's just important. It's perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's about having diversity of perspective. That's the same approach that mm-hmm. I take to like, to Hollywood or storytelling or filmmaking or even, like the diversity of thought is valuable. It's not. Mm-hmm. And that's literally what we're trying to, I feel yeah. like in essence, combat which is this yeah. idea that there is a singular aspirational way of being, which is being white. That's no longer cutting it. It's not mm-hmm. that, that, that mm-hmm. bubble has burst. Yeah, right. And not. we're seeing the problematic nature and the yep, way that we've yeah. been buying into that narrative and the, and, and to the patriarchy and like all these things that, yeah, some people can hear that. I can even hear myself and be like, wow, we've really reached that point. But like, yeah, we have reached that point. We need to be this like Captain Obvious about it. Like these are problematic mm-hmm. ways of thinking, subconscious bias, you know, like our limiting beliefs have have kind of brought us to this point. And it's not pointing a finger yeah. and blaming. I'm pointing, like I'm taking responsibility for myself as much as I hope anybody else is. And again, it's just a point of recognition is like, that's where I think the resolution comes from is resolving it within ourselves first. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a tough pill totally. to swallow because I don't like admitting that like, oh, wow, I've really been a part of the problem in this way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough. Horrible, no, one, but, no one wants to confront that. Yeah. But it's important. It's, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It starts with yourself and it's, you know, um, it's necessary. And then we go out and then we, and then we, we handle the streets, (laughs) resolving yourself and then, and then take it to the polls. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) To sum it all up, resolve yourself, take it to the polls. Yeah. Uh, Kwok, I forget. We've been talking for uh, a long time, yeah, but it flew by. Like, I honestly, I, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I'm really like, I want you to come back and keep me posted. And like, I mean, we're definitely going to keep in touch, yeah. but especially yeah. as like everything unfolds, I think, um, yeah. you know, and like the people that you respect and that you work with, I hope the conversations yeah. continue. Um, yeah. I would love to meet yeah, them. Sure. I don't know. Yeah, I just, for sure. I'm I'm nerding out yeah. on this. I, I'm really I feel um more hopeful as a result mm-hmm. of this conversation. I mean, I feel like I just learned a, a ton of stuff that I'm like, oh my God, I need to learn this and this and this and this. Yeah. But also I see its relevance. And I think when we have yeah. um purpose behind it, when we understand like it's not just learning for the sake of learning, it's learning so that mm-hmm. we can contribute to mm-hmm. the betterment of yes. our world. It's not even like yes. 
your world and my world. It's our mm-hmm. world. Like whether yeah. I yeah. choose to or not, I am part of this world. And um, yeah. if we can do any part to like contribute to that constructively, like hell yeah, sign me up. And yeah, and 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 talking to your own family members and the people in your community. It's educating them, and you have to educate yourself before you educate them. Right. That's part of the change too. And know? being open to it. honestly, like the, again, the personal part of me is like. As much as I'm going to educate myself is like stay open and like, because I get very defensive. And this is another episode that will be coming very soon. Um, is talking with my friend, Sarah, who we're going to talk about allyship, but specifically Mm -hmm. on difficult conversations with family. Cause both she and I have had (laughs) exceptionally, Uh, uh, difficult time with that. And that's a very big undertaking. We kind of throw that out there. And like, I think it's been, I've heard it so much in terms of like how to be an ally, how to help with social justice is like talk to your own family. Mm -hmm. But for some people, and maybe a lot of people, I'm going to guess it can be a very taxing Mm -hmm. thing to do. It's not a small thing to be like, talk to your family about it. So in light of that, I want to, you know, dedicate an episode or five um, to how to, how to, how to go about that. Like I talk about my family a lot. I don't, I don't mean it to throw anybody under the bus, but it's a loaded thing to like talk to people close to you because they impact you the most. Right. So yeah, it's, it's who you care about the most. Yeah. 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 And they can be, I'm looking forward to that part. Yeah. Yeah. It's forthcoming. I'm going to regroup because I'm going to marinate on all the things we just talked about quack uh where can people like where would you direct them to find out more about your work or you or do you want to plug anything else besides yeah so sure so we actually just started um this uh group uh, well we started um a uh instagram it's not associated with the office for political reasons but if anyone's interested following it's stack uh defenders of justice and i can send it to you after this pod yeah uh, stack defenders of justice um, we're, we'll be posting on social justice issues uh, at large and specifically in Sacramento as well. Um, so you can check it out. We'll, and we're, we're forming an um, equal justice committee in our office. Um, and we're going to be posting updates about that. Um, you can, uh, you know, I, I mentioned uh, about talking to our family members for any Vietnamese Americans listening to this pod, uh, pivot uh, at uh, pivot. Um, it, it's a Vietnamese organization, a uh, progressive Vietnamese organization. That they, they actually put out a lot of resources um, uh, for uh, Vietnamese uh, Americans who, to talk to the families. Like they, they've done uh, videos and stuff in Vietnamese and they've translated a lot of different stuff so that you can talk to family members who may not be English speaking or English is their second language. So it's at pivot.org. Um, and yeah, so those are two things that we talked about, um, and uh, those are some resources. That's I awesome. Know you can, if anyone wants to look, um, I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, there's a lot of different resources I can send you. Um, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, just send them to me. We'll definitely too. make sure to, yeah. to check them out. Um, personally, for yeah. me, I've been following um, Movement for Black Lives. And I actually mm-hmm. went to their webinar where they had a discussion with Asians for Black Lives. And it's it was mm-hmm. a really good, I'm really just encouraged. There are thousands of people. I think there are f- yeah. 3,000 plus people that were on that uh, Zoom meeting just to get more yeah. educated and understand the resources, the way that these conversations intersect um, and the yeah. long-term work that's happening. And I, I agree with you, Kwok. I think we're, it is a big change. I feel it personally on my side. I think that we're, we've reached a point 
point of no return. I'm really excited about that. And where we go from here is yet to be determined. But I also have a lot of faith in like our collective imagination and creativity because that's what's going to be required of us right now. And um, hopefully this conversation helped contribute to planting more seeds and and encouraging more people to get out there to take action for themselves or the community and like figure out where we're going to go from here. Cause you know, you and I don't have all of the answers. We just have our thoughts. We We put it on this public forum (laughs) and I just appreciate you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Um, I appreciate your kindness and you know, I'm very proud of you too. Christine or Minji. Sorry. Um, (laughs) he knows it's Christine. (laughs) I mean, I I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, proud of you too for the work you've been doing i've been a fan from afar and you know we're still connected and stuff to check in on you every now and then and the you know progress you've made i'm proud of you to see how your voice has grown too and when you first started as pod i don't listen to all of them but i, I check in from time to time um but yeah mm-hmm. i know I, I i i you know i was thinking about before coming on this podcast remember when we were working at prevention institute together you had taken a like a class it was like an acting class i believe um mm-hmm. and you were telling me about it how like you're thinking about wanting to be an actor and wanting to get <laughs> entertainment and you know and and like you were just like oh i'm starting to find my voice like this is exciting and you we were talking about all these like different ideas you had and then years later you had you work with collaboration and you know all the things you've been doing it's it's been great to see so i just wanted to say you know i'm also proud of you it's it's been it's been cool to see Thank you. uh, I appreciate the work that you and everyone else is doing for, you know, Asian American and Asian American representation. It's very important. I was telling you before, it's even as an Asian male, as a Vietnamese male, there's not a lot of trial attorneys, Vietnamese American trial attorneys. And, um, and so, you know, the the issues of representation affect the, even affects me even in, you know, my job. as a For sure. Thank you. That means a lot. That really means a lot. And, and on that note too, like, because I've been big on the representation thing, everyone thinks that I'm telling everybody to go be an actor artist, which I'm like, if you have that inclination, if that's who you are and that's your purpose and that's something you want to try for a period of time in your life, I think it's a very worthwhile endeavor. It's a very, Mm -hmm. um, it's like a very revealing journey to like reveal your soul and who you are. So I think it's very cool, but I'm by no means like, Again, I wanted to be a doctor. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Everyone, like, yeah. personally for me on my side, everyone's like, I don't want to be a lawyer or doctor. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, yeah, we need that. good lawyers yeah. and doctors. So for me, I think yeah. it's just expanding our minds and our our agency for change and, like, do what you want to do. Um, listen yeah. to your intuition. It's like, again, learning how to go inside versus outside and listening to all these different um, shoulds of, like, what ought to be. And like, if you are so inclined, if you have the same dream as Kwok does to like freaking go fight for justice in, in a trial arena, that's, I mean, my God, I can't, I can't, I I go on camera and I'll be like vulnerable and emotional, whatever. And that terrifies some people, but the idea of like going to litigation to defend somebody's life, that scares me way more than like learn lines and pretend to be somebody else. Like, I'm like, cool, sure. I get to play (laughs) pretend like that's different. So I appreciate that. But anyone listening, if you're thinking about doing it, you can do it. Yes, you can do it. You, you have the potential. You can do it. Don't let the fact that there's not a lot of us out there prevent you from doing it yes all right and so i maybe if i inspire one person like my you know like vu my mentor inspired me then that's great go out and do it love it achieve your dream 
Thank you again. Um, I hope uh, people keep up with uh, Kwok, with his work, with the the work in general, and um, encourage you to see how you want to be part of this conversation or just stay in the background and learn until you're ready to to jump in. And um, thank you to to, uh, Uzuhan for his use of song, Uzu Trap, for the intro and outro for this episode. And thank you to Marvin Yue, my audio engineer producer, for holding it down for, first of all, making sure that we, we sound good and that we're up uh, on, on the airwaves and you can find first of all podcasts on all the podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google play, Stitcher, Apple podcasts, radio public, and everywhere else you find podcasts. And um, I'm also a proud member of the potluck podcast collective, which is a collective of Asian American podcasters and storytellers. So go check out some of those shows. They're so amazing and hilarious. And again, different perspectives. We're just like sharing our stories with the world. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to follow me, you can follow me at Minjeezy or at first of all pod for updates on Instagram. You can email me at firstofallpod at gmail.com. Stay tuned for more episodes. There's a lot more conversations, a lot of uh, ideas and seeds planted in the future. But thank you again to Kwok for being such an amazing guest. Thank you, Minji, for having me on. Yeah, have a good week, everybody. You too. Talk to you soon. All right, bye. Bye. Yeah. Came in 88 with a dream of so bright eyes. They knew right away, sink or swim, there's no lifelines. Cutting their teeth on the move, nobody's filling these shoes. Balling on a budget at the Golden Arch, super size number two. Cash. Way that the world ain't budging. Gotta make a power move. Deep in the darkest dungeons, I'm digging up my own rule. Hands on the plow. Keep my head down. Sweat on my brow. Don't make a sound. Pay my dues now. Mm, but we're still here and we're going strong it's an exciting time in asian america there are more movies tv shows books and music reflecting us than ever but all of these represent just a small slice of asian american culture and experiences so what do we do tell more slices asian americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly asian american culture and history We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.